A very special show today with Global BC's Keith Baldry, the Vancouver Sun's Von Palmer and broadcasting legend Bill Good on the panel, all live in studio. Special guests joining us on the show today include Attorney General David Eby, Liberal Leader Andrew Wilkinson, and Green Party Leader Andrew Weaver. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Welcome to a special afternoon edition of Inside Politics. Real pleasure. I am, I've been super excited about this show for quite a while now, but real pleasure to welcome uh, live in studio here at Radio NL. I'll start across the table, uh, left to right, uh, broadcasting legend, old colleague Bill Good across from me. Bill, welcome. Old colleague sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> beside him is uh, Global BC's Keith Baldry. How are you, Keith? Good to be here, Shane. And beside him is the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer. Welcome. Pleasure to be here. Hello to Camelot. Uh Bill, it's a real treat to welcome you here because because I shamelessly stole the cutting edge of the ledge format for this show. And I noticed that. I, I noticed you showed up without a lawyer, so I'm assuming I'm okay. <laughs> You're okay. <laughs> I'm glad somebody's carrying it on, frankly. I never understood why it went away just because I did, but that's uh, the way it goes. Yeah, um, and it was my favorite hour of radio every Friday, and it was something in my career I always wanted to be on, so I cheated and just did it myself. <laughs> it enormous fun doing it for years with, with Von Rangel for, what, 15 years? I guess. I haven't done it, but it would be about It was, uh, a, a, I think, a very popular segment. A lot of people listen. Particularly people who are active in BC politics, it was a must-listen show. Yeah, it absolutely was. Uh, let's jump into this because time's always precious. Uh, we've had uh, an ongoing story with the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Of course, the John Horgan government ran in the election on stopping this thing. Uh, we've had some uh, interesting twists and turns ever since. Uh, yesterday, uh, Kinder Morgan went 0 for 16, or 16 and 0 rather, and the court challenges, City of Burnaby, City of Vancouver, both tossed out by a BC Supreme Court judge. Uh, why don't we start with you, Vaughn? What does this do as far as the legal context? Does this put the pipeline and Kinder Morgan on more solid ground, or, or no? You know, we're still waiting for the big one, which is the, you know, the, the big one is the First Nations challenge to the federal cabinet's approval of the project. That case was heard in BC in Federal Court of Appeal in Vancouver last October, and the Federal Court of Appeal has not ruled yet. Everyone's wondering why it is taking them so long. The Attorney General David Eby, I think, got right this week when he said that decision goes against the federal government. This project gets sent back to square one. So the other court cases could be significant. There are interesting issues there, but the big one is that case. We still haven't heard. And we don't know why it's taking the Federal Court of Appeals so long. Perhaps they're divided. Maybe they're waiting till after May 31st when the company's deadline passes. The judges don't want to get into the middle of a political dispute. Now let's talk about the deadline. What does this mean for Kinder Morgan with that looming deadline? Well, it's hard to see what impact these court cases have on Kinder Morgan's ultimate decision. I think they're still worried about there not being any certainty, even with court rulings like this. And Vaughn's right, the key court ruling is not the ones we saw yesterday, the ones up until now. It, the, the key one that will determine this, like in most likely, likelihood, if this is a legal determination, it's going to be at the federal court level. The federal courts are the one, remember, who tossed out the Enbridge pipeline because there was not sufficient consultation with First Nations. And that's what they're being asked to rule on in this particular case as well. If they make the same ruling and uh, it goes back to square one, then this thing's dead. 
if it does proceed, um, it really could come after May 31st. Kinder Morgan may well make a decision before they see that federal court ruling. And that's, that's what's got everybody, I think, up in the air here in terms of uncertainty. If you're an investor in the company, you want certainty more than anything. And that's the last thing you see right now in this file. I agree totally with Keith, yeah. except for one thing. I find it really hard to get my head around the idea that a company would walk away having spent $800 million right. up front to get to this point. Uh, I don't think it's something they would do readily. Um, they'd have to really be convinced that uh, they couldn't proceed with some certainty. Uh, that may still be the case, but at the moment it's just hard to imagine that they're just going to write off nearly a billion dollars. And the other thing I'd like to comment on from what Keith said, Enbridge did a terrible job of uh, mm -hmm. consulting with First Nations. No question. Ian Anderson, in my mind, has bent yes. over backwards for years to do diligence with First Nations, has in fact got agreements with something done like 40 more than 30 in British Columbia, where they will stand to benefit if this goes ahead and will stand to lose dramatically if it doesn't. So the people who keep talking about First Nations being adamantly against this pipeline are not being fair to those who have not only signed on to it, but as Ernie Cray has been much more outspoken about recently, have been um, speaking for the need for their communities to have it. Yeah, the First Nations component continues to be a challenging one, Vaughn. It is challenging, but, you know, we have had some direction from the courts now that it is possible to adequately consult First Nations. We saw it. Uh, we saw it on uh, the Site C case. A uh, number of attempts to persuade the courts that BC Hydro had not fairly consulted First Nations, and the courts upheld that. And that got upheld all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. So uh, that's the one thing about the Squamish case uh, yesterday is again you had a court say look uh, there was consultation here uh, some first nations and some first nations lawyers act as if the right to be consulted is like a veto it is not so again i don't know why it's taking the federal court of appeal so long but it isn't out of the question that the federal court of appeal could find that uh, first nations were consulted here and a large number of first nations made deals those that didn't make deals uh, may simply have passed up an opportunity they could still by the way, go back if they lose and seek accommodation and deals. So if they lose, they do have the opportunity to get another deal. And Bill's right. The difference between Anbridge and this project when it comes to consulting First Nations is, is night and day. I talked to Ian Anderson uh, three years ago about this, and he, he yeah. said, first and foremost, his priority was consulting with First Nations. And they've documented, my understanding, just as BC Hydro's done, has actually entered as evidence into court how many meetings they've had, how long those meetings uh, have taken, how much was spent on the consultation process. I think Kim and Morgan has supplied that similar evidence of how much consultation has actually taken place. They've also they've drawn the ire of people who are dead set against any kind of fossil fuel extraction. But I remember Vaughn writing a piece in the Vancouver Sun about being in a movie theater and an Enbridge ad came on and the theater erupted in booze. Yep. Enbridge did a terrible job of public relations with the First Nations and other Canadians and British Columbians. Uh, 
Kinder Morgan has been exemplary, in my opinion, in, in their trying to accommodate virtually every community. Yeah, and I agree. And, and uh, I remember distinctly Ian Anderson coming to Kamloops and telling me how much he regretted not making a connection with Burnaby Mayor Derek Corrigan, who's mm -hmm. been, in, of course, very vitriolic against the pipeline. goes to show a little bit about how Ian Anderson, regardless of how you consider the pipeline, how much he took... Uh, it's a heart how much he wanted to go out and meet people face to face. Let's take a quick break here on Inside Poly, uh, Inside uh, Politics here on uh, Radio NL uh, with Keith Vaughn, uh, Bill, and myself. Uh, Andrew Weaver's in the wings waiting, and we'll get to him right after this commercial break. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. All right, let's get back to Inside Politics, and here's Shane Woodford. All right, well, thank Lord I am on the air. Uh, my blood pressure is about sky high right now. Uh, pleasure to be joined in the studio. Andrew Weaver is here. Uh, Bill Good has moved over to our regular talk show studio until we iron out these audio difficulties. We'll loop in, of course, uh, Keith and Vaughn, who are in the other room right now. Uh, Andrew, let's get on this topic right away because you've been very strong in your opposition to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, yesterday, a couple court cases tossed out. Kinder Morgan now 16-0 and on court challenges. A couple remain, obviously, the reference case among them, the First Nations Appeal. Uh, we have the, uh, the looming self-imposed deadline next week. So uh, what happens? You know, I've been saying it all along. What we're seeing here is an exit strategy by uh, Trans Mountain. Uh, this is a company that put its Canadian uh, assets into uh, a separate entity. Uh, it sold off 30% of them to the tune of $1.7 billion. Uh, recognizes that the market at the time, uh, which was predicate, which was their submission to the NEB, was uh, uh, assuming 100 to 150 barrels, dollars a barrel. Uh, it was assuming there was no other uh, uh, pipeline to export uh, Canadian oil yeah. and um, I see them playing an exit strategy and what we've got is a federal government that's seeking to indemnify that 1.7 billion because they're standing up recklessly saying a pipeline will be built and we'll back it. I'll do respect and I've heard the exit strategy thing before and before we get to Bill, uh, I'm told the, by somebody who happens to be a Kinder Morgan shareholder that they're getting very rosy updates from the pipeline company that's saying hey we're going to build this thing your stocks, your investment are secure. That doesn't sound like an exit the strategy to make? Well, you know, what company uh, it does due diligence by essentially holding a gun to uh, a federal government or a, a provincial government and says, uh, do it our way or, or, or there shall be no way? Uh, this May 31st deadline is entirely artificial. Uh, it is, you know, Trans Mountain has known about the uh, Tsleil-Waututh Nations case, which is before the courts. Very powerful case. Uh, frankly, that is the one that people are waiting to see. Uh, uh, the province is an intervener there. The province actually def uh, was, uh, supported uh, Trans Mountain in the case against the Squamish in the city of Vancouver because it was defending its... Yeah, a case that was tossed out. Right, but the, but the province there was was actually on the side of K Trans Mountain in that case. It was, That case was about the environmental assessment. It was not a strong a case. Uh, and so Kinder Morgan's known about this. Uh, there's no surprise. The reality is we have the Loop facility in Louisiana now able to ship out uh, oil, a two million barrels uh, in one tanker. You know, we can only get 450,000 on the Aframax scale tankers in Vancouver. You'd need four of those ships for every one out of Louisiana. That didn't exist a few years ago. The market's just not there. Trans Mountain knows it, in my view, and and, and uh, the federal government was foolish to say this pipeline will be built and actually stand up and say we'll indemnify uh, the uh, offer an indemnity, because now taxpayers' money's on the hook here uh, for uh, because of the reckless behavior of the federal government. Bill, let's, let's, let's bring it here. Now, 
the Kinder Morgan investors have seen a case for the pipeline. And I'm having a hard time thinking that Kinder Morgan is simply going to walk away having, as I said in the last segment, having put $800 million into this project with the the applause of their investors, you know, with the confidence of their investors to do so. It's easy for people to say it doesn't make economic sense anymore. Well, if it didn't make economic sense anymore, the investors wouldn't be backing it. So far, they have been. I think Kinder Morgan has been patient. Uh, the federal government gave this approval months and months ago. A lot of people have been saying, where is Mr. Trudeau with his, his father's just watch me? You know, some leadership from the federal government saying this is in the national interest, he said it was, saying it is going to be built, the federal government backs it, and yet he has not come through with what people who are in favor of the, of the pipeline uh, have been expecting, and certainly what the people in Alberta have been expecting. So I think what Kinder Morgan has done is said, come on, Prime Minister, it's up to you to, you know, we've done our part. We've done every, we've gone through every hoop, jumped through over every hurdle. We've got all the approvals that are necessary. Where are you? Right. Andrew, so, at what point does the rule of law come in? I mean, no, I get you don't like the project. No, no, I, no. I understand hang, hang on. Again, the, the, the issue here, again, we're not talking about what we should be talking about. What are we talking about? The province has essentially done this. It said, do we have an ability to regulate a substance across our uh, jurisdiction? The concern has been and always has been about exporting diluted bitumen, a substance that we know from the National Academy of Sciences report cannot be cleaned up if there is a spill, and it would have profound economic consequences to British Columbia if that were to happen in and around Vancouver. That there is the issue. A spill in sixty years. That's actually not true. Not there has been there was one in Burnaby, and it was it wasn't a, a spill. It was a pipe that was it was well broken. So that's a spill by definition. Well, yeah, but it, there, wasn't, it wasn't the fault of the company or the pipeline company. It doesn't matter. It was a spill. Uh, and there are many other examples. Talk to Kalam Kalamazoo in in, uh, in Mississippi, which was so the bitumen. Was the Burnaby bitumen? No, I actually, because in the present facility, most of what's what's shipped is not diluted bitumen. There is one. There was so six, there has not been a bitumen spill. Not in not Even in our coastal bitumen's waters. Bitumen's been shipping through the pipeline. We, we've not. We don't ship bitumen. We ship diluted bitumen. And the problem there. Yeah, is... Yeah, but my point is, is, is you're worried about this uncleanable spill. And my Correct. counterpoint is, we have been to some degree funneling diluted bitumen 16 down Sixteen tankers in twenty six. I have not seen a diluted bitumen spell at sea. And recent no. studies have indicated no. that that's not true. Bitumen really. can be. No, that's clean. not true either. That's that's I, I participated in the National Energy Board assessment process, and I know those Gainford studies, and I actually assessed those and looked at them. Uh, those studies were done in the laboratory. They were not done in conditions uh, representative of the weathering of a coastal region with salinity and and particulate matter like in the coastal region. They were done in freshwater uh, conditions and 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 non-representative other other conditions. So so. So the, we, we do, we just have to go again to the National Academy of Sciences in the United States two years ago issued a report that talked about the process of weathering of diluted bitumen and the fact that the reason why it's a concern is that the diluents, the light fluids that are mixed in with the bitumen to make it less viscous, evaporate very readily under, under, under weathering and actually leave the, the heavy stuff to sink. Are you, are you not bothered by the number of tankers that are applying the waters in the United States with very little opposition, the amount of oil that is being now exported from the United States as we send our oil to the U.S. at cheap 
prices and they are sending their oil around the world and making gobs of money at it uh, again, and, and we're not able to take part in that market? Well, again, that's not also not com completely correct because the U.S. Pretty was... Pretty correct. Well, no, then the U.S. was not allowed to ship raw uh, oil exports. That was illegal until very recently. Uh, they were... They, they, had they are now. That very recently, not for years. It's only very recently. They were not allowed to. They had uh, federal law prohibited them exporting oil offshore. What is happening right now is that Canadian products, it's, it's, the, the people uh, is indeed being shipped to America. There's no question. It's being refined there. The issue that I have is that why are we not actually refining here in Canada? Because nobody will invest in a refinery in Canada. Well, that's, Everybody's sorry, been I, saying I, that I, would be lovely. Uh, actually, can no, nobody Bill, will do that's it. also Andrew, not I, correct. Well, can I, can I because David Black. Yeah, but he hasn't been able to get the money. No, actually, that's also and not he was correct. willing to put up about ten million dollars of his own money. Can I, can I, can I jump in with a quick point? Yeah, here? Sure. The Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. Yeah, yeah. The Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers yep. told me that we actually refine and export more than we use. So we're a net mm -hmm. exporter refined product, and that there is no market. We simply cannot, from a from a building and staffing and cost perspective, compete with the United States in building a refinery. And we also refine more than we use now. So there's a couple of problems with that argument. Number one is is that the U.S. refineries, if you're worried about um, uh, uh, access to refineries, you can ship to them. They're underutilized. Number two is we do have refineries on the East Coast yes. that are that import oil right now. They are not fed with Canadian oil. They, we import into the Irvin refineries on the East Coast. There's I lots of tankers. Well, exactly. So why are we not having a discussion about replacing... It's not, again, that, why are we not discussing about replacing the foreign oil that we're dependent on by Canadian oil? But we'd have to talk about Energy East. And Energy East would go through Quebec. But most of the foreign oil, I understand, is in Quebec. It, uh, it's from coming from Venezuela, you mean? or what? what? Sorry, one of the, the foreign oil consumption that I'm aware of in Canada is generally in the regional eastern, in the eastern, eastern seaboard. Absolutely. So why do we not have a talk about Energy East? Why aren't we, why aren't we talking about that? Because that would actually feed Canadian refineries with Canadian oil. But unfortunately, that's right. going to put it through Quebec, which has got an awful lot of liberal seats, and that's not a very pleasant discussion to have with the liberal government. So let's, let's you know, what we have here is that NEB process was 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 a rig. Everyone knows it was who had participated in it. We, we have concerns about diluted bitumen, very significant real concerns that should not be dismissed uh, because of rhetoric. And we, are t we, we have had alternate proposals put on the table by David Black, by First Nations up in Prince Rupert, and others. We've got the Sturgeon Refinery. People, uh, people, then that goes against what people say about refining. That just came on stream, right. and I, I, that's the issue that we should be talking about. Andrew, refining we're, here. we're flat out of time. I want one quick answer from you. Next week they have a deadline. Does Kinder Morgan stay or go? They're going to go. They're going to go, in my view. And I okay. look at the stock, and you look at that as trading below the initial IPO. All right, uh, we're out of time, Andrew. Always a pleasure for coming in and spending your time with us. Always good to see you. Uh, always good to have Bill Good in studio, which has never happened before. And we'll get Keith and Vaughn back in here once we iron out all of our problems. Uh, the gentlemen, thank you. Uh, we'll be right back here on Inside Politics, hopefully with a uh, audio system that works right on the other side of this break. Thanks, Shane. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good afternoon. Welcome back to a special afternoon edition of Inside Politics. Real pleasure uh, to be joined by Bill Good, Von Palmer, and Keith Baldry. And uh, now we're in an environment where we can all hear each other, which is kind of nice. <laughs> uh, let's pick up quickly. we got a, about a half hour to just uh, talk about various things, and we'll try and jam as much stuff in here as we can. I want to pick up a little bit on the pipeline talk because uh, that's a big issue. Bill Morneau, the, the federal finance minister, has uh, called the Calgary Chamber of Commerce as of yesterday to book a Wednesday speech, which is the day before uh, the self-imposed 
proposed May 31st deadline. One kind of assumes that if the federal government's going to Calgary to talk, uh, that perhaps some good news is, is in the wings. Uh, Bill, why don't we start with you? Well, it's hard to imagine, although <laughs> anything can be imagined these days, that he would do that the day before the uh, drop-dead deadline imposed by Kinder Morgan without having some kind of a deal. You know? Uh, <laughs> but it's not unheard of for him to hold a news conference and give a speech that doesn't really tell you anything. I keep waiting for for the Prime Minister to give a speech that actually, as I referred to in the last segment, the um, just watch me, uh, you know, he's been behind this, he's said for years, months certainly, that this is going to get done, that it needs to get done. Well, he's the one who can do it, unless the courts say no, which... Yeah. But the question now is, what is this deal? I mean, we have heard shades of, well, we're going to buy it or we're going to become partners in it. Alberta said sort of similar things. Uh, do we throw a bunch of taxpayer money into this thing, Vaughn? Well, uh, this is not a uh, very smart federal government. They're not very good at bargaining. Look, if you, if you started with the premise that we need to get more of our oil to world markets to get a better price, that's a, a reasonable conclusion. But when they came to office, they had three pipelines in play. They killed two of them. <laughs> and they then said that the third one is going to get built. It is absolutely going to get built. Take it to the bank. It's going to get built. Which put the company that's planning to build it an awful lot of leverage, <laughs> which Kinder Morgan has made very good use of. So I would like to agree with Bill that you'd think that if the finance minister is going to make speech in Calgary the day before the deadline, that he's got a plan and he's got a deal. But... Given the way they've played this so far, I don't have a lot of confidence in the federal government on this. I think they've played it very, very badly. They put the country in a very bad bargaining position, and they may end up having to give Kinder Morgan a lot more money and a lot more guarantees than they would have if they'd played all three pipeline projects off against each other. I don't disagree with anything Vaughn yeah. has said, although I was reminded the other night, I think it was on the national news, that... Um, uh, the Canadian government has invested in Hibernia, has invested in Petro Canada, has invested in uh, the automotive industry uh, with some success over the years. So it's it's very easy to say I don't want to see the government throwing taxpayer money at this. Um, it will probably be years before we find out if they do do it, whether or not it was a prudent thing sure, financially yeah, to yeah, do. Yeah. Uh, Keith, let's bring you in on this. Uh, in all the kerfuffle, the political finger-pointing and all the fur, is Kinder Morgan the ultimate winner here? I mean, they've stayed under the radar. There's a chance that uh, Alberta and the feds are going to come to them with a pocket of cash. Uh, are they the ultimate winners here? If they Well, if they stay in the game, they're, they're going to be the winners. If they walk away, uh, they've got at least a billion dollars in sunk costs, which they might be able to, analysts uh, suggest that they can recover cover that through their own court proceedings. Uh, but yeah, John Iveson had a good piece in the National Post today, I thought, basically uh, uh, likening Bill Morneau and Trudeau's uh, positioning to a poker game in which you've already shown your opponents all your cards. And Morneau has uh, basically put his cards on the table at the beginning, and Trudeau has said, we're, go we're going all in. Politically, he has to have this pipeline built. So you've got the Kinder Morgan CEOs, uh, I think, sitting there, rubbing his hands gleefully, thinking, I can get even more money out of this government than I even would have dreamt of, say, a year mm. ago. So by setting that deadline arbitrarily out of the blue, Kinder Morgan changed the conversation entirely, changed the timetable entirely, and put the squeeze on Ottawa in a way that wasn't there before that deadline was imposed. All right. Uh, let's move on to some other topics. Uh, you, We had a bit of an interesting discussion off the air, and I wanted to bring it on the air. Uh, we're having a big wildfire here in Kamloops. It jumped from 25 to 100 to now 1,600 hectares got into some pine beetle kill. Uh, God only knows what the fire season's going to be like, but we're aware of what the financial picture provincially here 
year is. If we have another fire season that treads close to or perhaps exceeds last year, uh, what kind of financial peril does that put the province, uh, the provincial budget in, Keith? Well, Carol James has about $900 million in unallocated revenue in her budget. That's 550 in a contingency fund and 350 in a sort of a cushion revenue allowance. Mm. Uh, last year, the total cost for fires and emergency program responses for compensation and, and flooding and such equaled um, basically the amount of money that's not in the budget this year to cover those items. There's only $63 million, $66 million in the budget to cover wildfire, wildfire costs. Last year, they approached $600 million. If we have another bad season, there goes the contingency contingency fund. Uh, last year, uh, again, well more than a quarter of a billion dollars spent on emergency program. This year, $15 million uh, budgeted. Uh, we came in here from the airport with you, Shane. We crossed the Thompson River, looking mighty high right now. There's yeah. there's flooding in a lot of areas of the province that weren't flooded last year. Flooding costs are going to be higher this year. If wildfire costs are also just as high, that puts Carol James' $219 million sort of tiny, puny little budget deficit in peril. It doesn't mean that necessarily she's going to slip into deficit. I've talked to her about it. She's mm. not worried about that right now. She's worried about the people impacted by fires and floods. But uh, she hopes there's enough elasticity in that budget to withstand another bad season. Yeah, and, but there's not much they can do there. I mean, it's it, well, you the, have to the, the costs are going to gotta, come as they come. I think this can. is one of the things where the f provincial government could go into deficit and not be blamed or not be painted uh, into a dark corner. Uh, as Vaughn and Keith have said on a number of times, the bill has has to be paid. What they're going to probably yeah. have to do is allocate more money every year into their budget to account for it because $250 million, while it's a lot to us, isn't probably going to cut it in the future with uh, it, it being apparent that floods and wildfires are going to be with us virtually for the rest of our lives. Yeah, Vaughn? Yeah, the, the real problem for the government is that they have uh, started to keep their promises. They have a large number of very expensive promises and they're not fully funded yet. And they were hoping that that discretionary money would be available for that. If it's gone, yes, I agree with Bill. They can be in deficit for forest fires, but then they start keeping their promises. They have to find some money. And the other thing is uh, the government is headed for major public sector wage negotiations next year mm -hmm. with the entire yep. public sector. And as uh, Keith has already pointed out uh, in a couple of pieces that he's done, uh, even a 2% raise for two years will eat up $1.8 billion that quickly. So the New Democrats will get squeezed on their promises and the expectations of the public sector unions, of course, they have to pay the bills for the floods and the forest fires. All right. Uh, let's take a quick break here in Radio Now. On the other side, we'll dive into a, a, probably one of the most interesting topics in the province, and that's this proportional representation referendum. Uh, still waiting for a campaign at T-minus five months till voting day. We'll see how that goes. Uh, more with Keith Vaughn, Bill, and myself here on Inside Politics and Radio Now, right after this. Local News Now. Radio NL, 610 AM, and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good afternoon and welcome back to Inside Politics. Pleasure to be joined by Bill Good, Von Palmer, and Keith Baldry, all live in studio, which is a real treat. Uh, guys, we've talked a lot about this, but I, I don't think it's necessarily catching on as much as it should be with people, the proportional representation debate. And um, I'm of the opinion, no matter where you stand on it, whether you're for or against or whatever, because I, I was thinking, and I'll make an admission here, I don't know as much about PR as I should, uh, and I'm tied in the media business, and I should know more than I do, but I, I, I think kind of that struggle with my myself, I had this sort of reflection that, you know, if I'm a voter, 
and I'm more tied in the, because of the job requirement than most people are, unfortunately. Well, maybe it would help if they told you what it was you were going to be exactly. voting for. But I was well, built they don't for. Don't want to I, tell you what you're going to be <laughs> voting for. They want you to vote for it. Yeah. And then they're going to tell you. What but I was coming for. from the perspective of like, I want to know more. I want some clarification. I want to know what I'm voting for. I want to have some kind of information about the issue. And from somebody who is an undecided voter, they've got nothing. And we got five months to go, Keith. Well, uh, John Horgan was asked about that uh, a couple weeks ago, and he said, look, right now people aren't thinking about this. They're more interested in their barbecues, and it'll be a good time to get this information out. Uh, I, you know, there's a suspicion out there, maybe the NDP actually secretly wants this thing to fail, to not succeed with the voters, which is why they've taken so long to release what the question's going to be on the ballot. And in terms of information, it's hard to put out information unless you're you're clear on what system you're going to be looking at as an alternative to first right. past the post. And the joint submission from the NDP and Green Caucus was such that all they want to put to voters is, do you want to change the system? And if you do want to change the system, then a, a hand-picked set of government-appointed uh, advisors and so-called experts and poli-sci profs and this such, they would decide what the voting system would be for British Columbia. So that's the position from the NDP caucus and the Green caucus. I don't think David Eby will go that far. I, he's going to have the question out next week. And that's when the debate will actually begin. We can start having some information. Are we going to be voting on first-past-the-post and another specific uh, uh, system, such as uh, mixed-member or single-transferable vote? Or is it going to be a real fuzzy thing that we don't really know what the clear alternative is. We should know next week. But though. it shouldn't be a fuzzy thing. I no. mean, we're talking about changing uh, our, the finite of our democratic process. There should be no fuzzy about that. Bill, uh, and Vaughn, I want to talk to you about the question in a minute, but Bill, you, in your career, you've seen a number of referendums, so the HST probably being the last one, and then the STV vote, and then there was another PR vote prior to that, and top yeah. of whatever else. When you look back at covering those referendums compared to what's playing out with the proportional representation process how do they compare or don't compare well they don't compare uh, in in both of the previous cases that you referred to Gordon Campbell to his credit a decided to give people a voice uh, they also had what was called a citizens assembly which brought together a, a very diverse group of people uh, some expert with expertise and some not but all with an interest enough to spend some time um, and in in one case it came very close to passing in the other case it was dramatically defeated but in both cases I was able to spend a lot of time on my radio show um, exploring what the questions were and what the options were and what they meant and what they were going to mean down the road. And I think uh, people, if they had a, a, a remote interest, at least felt informed enough to make a decision. In the end, both were rejected, but they were both given a lot of coverage and a lot of opportunity for people to understand what it was they were being presented with mm. and asked to vote for or against. And Vaughn, that's totally not the case now. Yeah, Vaughn, I was struck by your column because you got, of course, some some uh, some material, a letter, I believe, from Craig Keating, the president of the NDP, laying out sort of a strategy which we have seen shades of in this process. But if we have a if we have a question, and perhaps we'll see a draft question next week, I don't know, we'll ask Mr. Eby when he comes on in a few minutes. Uh, if we see a draft question, it's just like, well, are you in favor of, of something other than first past the post? Are you in favor of proportional representation without any kind of finite detail? Does that suffice? No, I mean, Bill is right. The the Liberals let an independent commission chosen at random, the, the Assembly, pick the system we were going to 
decide whether we want it. And it was a clear question. Do you want the new system or do you want to stick with the old system? And Bill's right. It almost passed the first time and the second time it was overwhelmingly but, rejected. But on the first time, if, if I'm not mistaken, it, it had a high bar. Yeah, it had to pass a bar in every yeah. riding in yeah. the province. Yeah, that's, that's not the case this time. Yeah, well, no. So the, the difference here, the big difference here is the government wants this to pass and it looks to me like they're doing everything they can to stack the deck. They've made, they've lowered the threshold for passing. They're not making allowances for the fact that the north and the interior of the province, which would likely lose local members under most of these <laughs> Depending PR on whatever systems, system right? they adopt, but we have they no idea. Likely lose, they, they're not going to make, they're not going to weight them at all. And the other problem is that they've named David Eby the neutral arbiter of the process. He's supposed to make sure it's fair and that it's neutral. There are many things that could be said about David Eby. He's one of the smartest people in the government. He was one of the most effective partisans the New Democrats had in opposition. He is a very sharp-tongued, yeah. sharp-elbowed politician. I wouldn't disagree Neutral with that. is not a word that springs <laughs> to mind. It's like uh, short. It just doesn't apply to David Eby. That's a very good point. So, uh, that's, so you, you wonder, do they want this thing so badly that they're stacking the deck to get it? And so even if you think PR is a good thing, is it a fair process? Doesn't look like it. And I think it's a problem when you have people like Vaughn Palmer and Les Lane and Keith Baldry either using the term that Vaughn has, stacked the deck, yeah. or something akin to that. You've got people who are, by, by most fair standards, pretty nonpartisan, saying, this is a stacked deck. Yeah. Well... Hello. But here's here's the thing, and we'll take that idea one step further. Uh, and talking to Bill Thielman this week and, and uh, hearing uh, some chatter out of the proportional representation debate that was held in Kamloops this morning at the Chamber AGM, where both sides says this system is lacking. At, at what point does the government in, quote-unquote, stacking the deck actually shoot itself in the foot? Well, I think the joint submission, uh, as it gets more publicity, where people are informed that the, the governing side and the green side want to set the s system themselves without the sign-off of the people of BC, I think that starts to uh, get people furious. So that, that, I think, is shooting themselves in the foot by basically uh, suggesting an almost authoritarian approach to uh, rearranging the electoral law. So as, as people get their heads around this, and I think also if... Um, we're up here in Kamloops, and once you get north of Hope, Shane, uh, the representation, the argument against PR is that the representation for, for people outside of urban areas starts to diminish quite significantly. And so BC, historically, our ridings are set along the lines that not every po every riding has to have the same population. It, it does take into account the vast geographical differences that exist in the province. So just because Surrey and Vancouver have the most people doesn't mean they get to have all the, the majority of seats right. in our system. That starts to tilt quite significantly towards the urban's urban side's advantage, and that's when I think whether it's shooting themselves in the foot or just by uh, uh, happenstance having to give information out that leave people in uh, non-urban areas to the realization that this is going to hurt them. That's that's a, another potential step backward in the process here as the NDP tries to push this forward. I was talking to Bill Tillman this week, and I was struck because we're all aware of where Bill Tillman stands politically. He's an ardent NDP supporter, although mm -hmm. he finds himself in opposition in this particular case. But he was telling me flat out that he thinks the government is going to suffer enough of a backlash by the way that they have, in his words, botched this process from both sides of the debate. Bill? Well, I was just thinking back to Gordon Campbell and the HST. You know, at a certain point, you lose credibility. Mm. 
by how you present it. In Mr. Campbell's case, he didn't present it. He didn't give people who might have been in favor of it an opportunity to, to demonstrate that. And I think this government is doing the same thing. Uh, I, I don't know anybody who has a clear picture of what it is, what path they're leading us down if they are really wanting to change first past the post, which, by the way, you may not have loved every government we've had, but if you look around the world, we've had pretty good governance, yeah. and we've had the opportunity after four years, if we don't like what we've seen, to replace it. Well, consider this. And, and in fairness, though, there are, there are a number of good democratic countries that run proper up in various forms. Look, of look, look, look what's going on in Ontario right now. I mean, I've talked to some Democrats about this. What if the NDP wins the Ontario election? And right mm -hmm. now, they're the ones with the momentum in Ontario. There's a lot of analysis right now that suggests they could very easily, Andrea Horvath could very easily win that election. It's going to be tight. But if they win, that means NDP will be forming majority governments in three provinces, all elected on the first-past-the-post system. Uh, under a PR system, the chances of a majority government for any party is just basically out the window. So the NDP would never form a majority government under a proportional representation. But it's conceivable, if things go their way on June 7th, we could have three sitting NDP governments running three provinces, all elected on first-past-the-post, not proportional representation. Vaughn, are they in a position now where there is going to have to be a backtracking, a saving of face, a, I don't know, a pushing off of the vote, some kind of a movement to go, okay, okay, the process is lacking, we admit the process is lacking, we're going to do whatever. Well, we're getting this report next week, and uh, the interesting thing will be, uh, you know, has it been massaged by David Eby and his political staff, as happened with the questionnaire uh, that we had consulting the public, or is this really an, uh, an independent report produced by public servants? Uh, is it a fair question? Is it a clear choice? Uh, and is the process itself going to be fair? We haven't seen much of that yet. They still have a chance to improve the process. They could, the Premier could name somebody other than David Eby to be the neutral arbiter as well, which would make the process fairer. But I don't see any signs of any of that. What I see is, uh, you know, I see why people are saying, are they, is the Democrats trying to sabotage this and they, they don't actually want it because they've handled it so badly this far. Well, okay, so let's go back to the point that this isn't catching fire with, with the population uh, here in, uh, in, in the province. Is that a double-edged sword bill uh, for this government, I mean, is it that that out, if it if it had caught fire, if people were tuned in and they suddenly went, oh my God, you know, this isn't right, and there was some kind of a like the HST, a palpable backlash, is that what's missing from sort of forcing well, this government? I'll to get Vaughn and Keith to, to comment on this. I wonder if it's overstating the case or not. A government can lose credibility. I think Mr. Campbell lost it on the HST. Um, this is a government that is at, at the moment. Um, really angered the small business community with its uh, shifting of tax dollars on MSP. It's really angered a lot of homeowners. Uh, granted, those are fairly well-to-do people with expensive homes, but they've left some of us with the suspicion that they see all of our houses as kind of a cash cow. The reverse and of that, though, is I think there's some a lot of people that are happy that something's being done as opposed to the previous well, government. Well, give it three more years. My, <laughs> my, my question is, in three years, is this government going to be able to say, we have made your life more affordable? Uh, at right. the moment, they have probably made a $3 million house worth a little less. Mm. That doesn't mean it's affordable. It doesn't mean anybody who is lusting after homeownership is going to be able to buy it. Yeah. Um, it hasn't created much in the way of rental accommodation by making people who have a, an empty home make it available for renting. They're not going to. Uh, they may sell it, but if they do... It's not an affordable property. 
They just have to sell it to somebody else with enough money to buy it. Mm. So on a whole lot of places and spaces, to me, you know, they said they fulfilled 75% of their promises. But if they made life better for 75% of the people or very many people, that's what we'll answer, be able to answer in three years. I don't know the answer to yeah, that. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that as well. But I, I'll go back to my point on the housing anyway. I do think that there is a palpable sense from from a good chunk of the population that, thank God, something's being done because in Vancouver specifically, things were just nuts. But, but the Crazy. rents in Vancouver haven't gone down. They're still sky yeah. high. The price of a home in Vancouver hasn't decreased unless it's a top-hand home. The stats out today uh, in Global Mail suggest that there's been no movement on housing, really, except for taking a $3 million home down to a $2.5 million home, which really doesn't address the issue of affordability. So I think they've bit off more than they can chew on the issue of housing because I don't know anyone who has any prospects of buying into the metro Vancouver housing market unless they want to start with a million dollars. And not many people can m- rustle up the money for a down payment on a million-dollar property. I, I don't care how many speculation taxes there are, or how many foreign owners taxes yeah. there are. We've only got That's about, not going to change the, the market situation. We've only got about 30 seconds left, but uh, real quick to you, Vaughn, we've signed a segue from one topic to the other accidentally here, but uh, is it come down to the definition of affordability? Yeah, they have gotten started on a fairly ambitious pro platform. I'm not sure that it is going to be able to tackle affordability. I'm not sure there's anything that can attack can really address affordability in and around Metro Vancouver. I think that mm. one, that train may have pulled out of the station a long time. It may be like fixing congestion, yeah. which we may get to. Yes, you know, uh, I've got that earmarked for our final segment. Attorney General David Eby is on the phone and probably listening in, and we'll talk to him on the other side of this break. Oh, man. 12.30 Merritt, 13.40 Ashcroft Cash Creek, from CHNL in Kamloops. This is Radio NL, 6.10 a.m., local news now. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good afternoon. Radio NL. Good afternoon, uh, Shane Woodford here. Welcome back to Inside Politics, a special two-hour afternoon edition as we move into hour two. Again, a real pleasure to be joined live in studio, a real treat. Uh, Bill Good, Von Palmer, and Keith Baldry sitting opposite me here in the NL studio. Also a pleasure to be joined on the phone by this province's Attorney General David Eby. Mr. Eby, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad you could come on. Uh, listen, uh, let's start on proportional representation, uh, David. Uh, first off, can you confirm that we're going to see something, I'm being told Wednesday, some kind of information, uh, I'm being told possibly campaign rules, possibly a draft question. So uh, first to you, can you confirm something's coming, and what is that something if it is coming? Yes, so uh, just a, a bit of background. Uh, we did a consultation uh, with British Columbians. There was a mailer went to everybody's house, and it said, uh, what do you think the question should be? What do you think this thing should look like? What are your values? What are you interested in seeing in a, in a system being put forward on the ballot that you get to vote on in relation to the referendum? That uh, engagement was the biggest engagement in British Columbia's history. More than uh, 88,000 people participating in that, completing the survey, um, filling out detailed information uh, in multiple languages. Uh, that information is all compiled into a report. The raw data will be available on Wednesday as well. Um, and recommendations based on that, which also included submissions from more, to, more than 30 different organizations uh, about uh, how the referendum should be run, what the question should look like, and so on. All that, you can see the formal submissions online, all that compiled into a report with recommendations, which will go forward on Wednesday. Uh, it will be released publicly first. Uh, it will have uh, recommendations around uh, what the question should be what the rules should be around funding uh, pro-first-past-the-post, uh, uh, pro-proportional uh, representation, 
uh, organizations. It will have rules about uh, fundraising and donation recommendations. Uh, it will have uh, recommendations around everything related to the referendum that is not set out uh, in the Act. And that report will go to Cabinet after it's released publicly, and uh, Cabinet will uh, promulgate regulations uh, based on that report. And if there's any difference in what comes out the other end from Cabinet from what goes into the report, you'll know because you'll have the report. So that's the process that's been set out, and that's the, the route that we've taken, and that's what's coming out on Wednesday, uh, which is namely all of the recommended uh, details around the referendum. The regulations, though, of, of course, have to be passed by Cabinet. Okay, so here's the bare-bones question. When are we going to see a campaign and rules to govern that campaign? We're about five months away from when we're going to vote at some point in November, and uh, still no campaign. So will Wednesday be the kickoff? Will we see at some point after that? Wednesday we'll have the the question and the rules, and then uh, they will uh, go to Cabinet in terms of of passing those regulations, uh, and, and Elections BC will take over from there. All right. Vaughn, looks like you want to jump in here. Here's Vaughn Palmer, David. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, uh, will you see the report before it's released and do the staff in your office have any role in putting this report and its recommendations together? And if you don't and they didn't, who is in charge of putting together this report to be shared with the public? uh, This is my report, Vaughn. The report itself, um, uh, written by uh, the public servants in the Ministry of Attorney General, based on the recommendations and then, or based on the feedback from British Columbians, and then uh, the key recommendations the cabinet uh, uh, they they provided suggestions to me, uh, but ultimately uh, politically they are my recommendations to cabinet based on the feedback from British Columbians. The report's mine. It's signed under my name. It's delivered under a letter uh, that I signed to uh, cabinet. How do you square that with what the Premier has said you're going to be, which is the neutral arbiter on this process? Every step of the way, it looks to me like you've been pushing it in the direction the government wants. Uh, You'll have to be more specific, Vaughn, because uh, I had uh, pro-proportional representation people tell me that it was uh, slanted in favor of first-past-the-post, the the existing uh, uh, system that we have uh, here in British Columbia, and I had first-past-the-post people tell me it was slanted in favor of proportional representation. So you'll have to be really specific about what you mean when you say that I've I've been pushing in the direction government wants. You're claiming you're actually neutral on this. I mean, there will be a referendum. There's been a bill passed. The Premier asked me to take on this job of consulting British Columbians and providing recommendations. So, yes. It is rolling out the way that uh, the process was designed by government, for sure. But you you campaigned in order to bring about proportional representation in B.C. How can you possibly be neutral? Well, the the question, I think, uh, more fairly asked after you read the report and the recommendations, and I'd be happy to go into detail uh, about any concerns that you have in terms of recommendations I'm making that you may perceive to be favoring one side or the other. Uh, We had feedback from British Columbians of all different perspectives, uh, on this issue, and uh, and so I, I look forward to sharing that report with you. Uh, Minister, it's uh, Keith Baldry here. Uh, just want to be clear, will the question be on in that report, or will there be uh, a number of que- yes. possible questions? Yeah, so the, the, rec- the recommendation about the, um, the question or questions to go to British Columbians will be in that report, absolutely. It, so when you say question, question or question, so it could be more than one that's question. Right. Yeah, right. All right. Bill, it uh, sounds like you want to jump in. Here's Bill. Well, I, I want to know what if it's been established at what level of support one side or the other would have to have for it to pass. Would it be province-wide? Would there be um, uh, 50% or more in a set number of ridings around the province? Would there have to be province-wide support for one or the other? Yeah, I get so the, the bill that passed... Uh, uh, bill in the legislature um, has a requirement of uh, a 50% uh, plus one 
for the uh, referendum to be binding on government. Uh, and that is the threshold that the, the legislature set. 50% plus one of the people who vote or 50% plus one of the, of the eligible yeah. voters in like, British Columbia? Like all elections and referenda bill of the people who vote. That's right. So it could be 25% of the people who support it get their way. Um, so there are a number of MLAs in the legislature that have been elected with far less than 50% uh, plus one. Uh, and uh, the system uh, as it stands in terms of unfortunately declining uh, voter participation, I'm really interested. We have a new uh, uh, person hopefully coming in for, uh, uh, for Elections BC um, who uh, hopefully, like the pre-existing uh, head of Elections BC, will be interested in getting those numbers up. Uh, but uh, we do have a voter participation problem in British Columbia, and there's been lots of interesting discussions about how to get those numbers up, including a suggestion about uh, about registering uh, uh, 16-year-olds not to vote, uh, but so that they know when they turn 18 uh, that they're on the voters list, which makes eminent good sense to me. Wouldn't wouldn't one way to drive uh, the up threshold on the uh, on the referendum? is 50% plus one of the people who vote, uh, like all referenda that have been held in the province to date. David, wouldn't one way of driving up participation be an appropriately lengthened campaign that is not five months, but something significantly longer than that? So the, the process, uh, I would argue, uh, started a while ago. There was a, uh, an election in which uh, proportional representation was an issue and was canvassed uh, by the parties. Uh, there was a throne speech from both parties that supported having a referendum on proportional representation. We sent a mailer to every house in British Columbia as part of the consultation where we had the biggest consultation in BC's history uh, in terms of people participating. So this process has been uh, underway for a while. I think it's not correct um, to say that it starts on the day uh, the report's issued or even at the beginning of what's considered the writ period uh, by elections BC. This is a discussion that's happening in the province right now. All right, but still, you have a five-month period, and one could make a pretty easy argument that that's not a sufficient process to change fundamentally how we vote. Uh, there hasn't been a referendum in the history of this province, I think, that has been that short, and I think that there needs to be more sufficient time. Is there any, I mean, are you guys just locked in cement that the voting day is November, or is there any way that that could be changed? Uh, so the the legislation is very explicit about uh, the deadline by which the vote has to be held. That is the job that I've been given is to put forward recommendations around that process. The referendum will be happening in November, and British Columbians will be voting about uh, uh, about uh, the future of how we send our people to uh, our representatives to the legislature. And I think that's the appropriate process. You know, you look at Quebec, uh, where the opposition parties got together and said, you know, we don't even need a referendum. Obviously, uh, not a good approach, uh, in my opinion. Uh, this is very serious, and it requires uh, British Columbians to be informed and to be able to have a vote, to have their say on the future. So that's why it's going to referendum. And you'll have uh, the uh, process and the rules and all those things, and I would be very glad uh, on Wednesday, and I'll be very glad to go through this in detail with you and, and address any concerns around fairness or, uh, or what the basis was for a certain recommendation. I don't, know, I don't know if you can answer this today, Mr. Attorney, but uh, the joint submission from the NDP and Green Caucus suggested that there not be a specific uh, system put to the voters, rather that would be left to uh, some experts to come up with after uh, first-past-the-post was decided to uh, sort of cast aside. Is that still a potential uh, scenario that's going to play out on Wednesday? Yes, the, the NDP Green submission was one of uh, more than 30 submissions that I received from organizations across uh, the province, uh, various backgrounds and interests, uh, and uh, submissions of more than uh, 88,000 uh, British Columbians through the online survey. Uh, so it's, uh, it's certainly safe to say, for me, I feel very comfortable telling you that 
the NDP uh, Green report is not the basis of uh, it's not a replication or I'm not replicating it in my report. Uh, the report that I'm putting forward is based on uh, submissions from a significant number of very serious and important groups that uh, weighed in on this as well as many, many, many British Columbians who took the time out of their lives to fill out a questionnaire on this and to provide feedback. Thanks for that clarity. All right, uh, David, are you okay to stick around through a commercial break and talk to us for a bit of insight? All right. Uh, we'll take a quick break here with Vaughn Palmer, Bill Good, Keith Baldry, myself, and Attorney General David Eby, and we'll continue our conversation with Mr. Eby right after this on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Local news then. Local news now. To Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Inside Politics, a special two-hour afternoon edition. Uh, great show. We've got in studio on the panel, Bill Good, broadcasting legend Vaughn Palmer, and across from me, Keith Baldry as well. And on the phone, we got Attorney General David Eby. Uh, David, uh, I know Keith wants to start off a question with you about something else that's about to drop next week. I'll take uh, let Keith pull it off here. Yeah, Mr. Attorney, you know, I've talked about this before. Just uh, wanted an update on the status of the Peter German report on money laundering. I know you were hoping to get that out soon. Any time frame to be expected there? really um, wanted to get this report out uh, before the end of the legislative session and we're still trying very hard to hit that timeline um, and uh, the, this is a report uh, where we hired uh, Peter German who uh, has a national and international reputation around anti-money laundering controls he's a lawyer he's a former senior RCMP officer and this was in relation to and it'll be familiar to many people in uh, Kamloops areas uh, uh, because BCLC headquarters is there are concerns related to uh, allegations, serious allegations of large-scale money laundering taking place in uh, in BC casinos in the Lower Mainland, uh, and uh, I, w- I want to get the report out as soon as possible. The reason for commissioning it was to ensure that the public knew what uh, went on and what we can do to fix it. And so we're working on that. The key concerns are privacy interests of uh, people who might be identified in the report, and uh, ensuring we don't interfere with any law enforcement investigations. So we're working with Mr. German uh, to make sure that we can address any concerns around that. And I, I hope to have it out as soon as possible. Is the report expected to go beyond casinos and look at real estate and sort of uh, high-end purchases that Mr. German's already flagged, like automobiles? So the majority of the uh, uh, questions asked to Mr. German related to uh, gambling in the province and the casinos and the allegations around money laundering. Uh, And there was one additional question which said, can you tell us about any connections to any other areas of the economy? So Mr. German has already flagged uh, uh, real estate as a concern. Uh, He's also flagged luxury cars. Uh, as uh, as being an issue as well, the purchase of luxury cars here with cash and shipping them to a to a different jurisdiction and uh, and selling them in, in order to launder money. So these uh, concerns have been identified publicly by him already, and uh, and there will be some of that. But uh, really, what we're looking at is another phase uh, related specifically to real estate. There are a number of allegations around builders' liens that have been raised as well, um, and uh, and other unsavory activities in the real estate market that we need to have addressed as well. Vaughn, you want to jump in here? Yeah, Mr. Attorney, uh, from what you were saying about the challenges involved in vetting this report, do I take it that you may not get it out uh, this coming week? Yeah, it's possible. Um, it's, uh, we're working really hard to try to get it out uh, this week. It wouldn't be uh, uh, terrible, in my opinion, if it was the week after, but I'm really trying to get it out uh, when the legislature's in session because I believe that uh, that my colleagues in the legislature from all parties should be uh, receiving it, uh, ideally while we're all in Victoria. But um, So that's, that's my target, but uh, it is possible that we might not be able to hit that date exactly. 
Thank you. Uh, David, uh, something else to put on your table. Uh, I know that the Premier responded to it uh, today as well, but uh, as part of the NAFTA renegotiations, the United States uh, has asked for a WTO uh, panel or an investigation to look into uh, the fairness of, of grocery stores selling just BC wine. I know the issue itself is not new, but uh, in your mind, uh, is the legality of that rock solid or, or is there going to have to be some flexibility there? Well, we we raised concerns about this issue uh, when the previous government was in power, and in particular, um, the uh, international wine interests, whether they're in Australia or California or in Europe, uh, are incredibly concerned when a new retail channel is opened up and they're excluded from it uh, in terms of our trade agreement. So, it's not a it was not a surprise to me when early on in my mandate as minister responsible for liquor that there was an announcement that there were these various challenges coming forward, and it shouldn't have been a surprise to the previous government either. Um, we have uh, put a hold on uh, on new uh, licenses for. Uh, BC wine and grocery store only. We didn't do the third auction of uh, licenses that was planned. Um, and uh, what we're trying to do is ensure that uh, we are trade compliant. Um, I know that the issue has been raised in the, in the NAFTA discussions and at the WTO level. Um, and so uh, we'll deal with those concerns. Uh, one of the things that uh, we have done, though, on the wine side is to encourage people uh, through, uh, through BC Wine Month uh, to buy BC wine and to support BC wineries. Uh, and we're big supporters of that sector, um, but we need to do it in a way that complies um, with our international trade obligations as well. So just to sort of put some clarification into that, uh, is that something that you're going to wait for uh, some kind of a legal ruling to come down, or is this something where you're concerned enough the NDP government jumps ahead to try and cut, uh, cut this thing off at the pass, as it were? So we um, have uh, it's called the Business Technical Advisory Panel on Liquor Policy that's been underway. A lawyer named Mark Hicken uh, has been working with uh, various sectors, including manufacturers, uh, retailers, uh, and others in, in the alcohol industry in British Columbia, trying to identify ways that we can support industry that are trade compliant. Uh, and and uh, so that is the direction that we're going to support the industry. Uh, and also to recognize that there are public health consequences in relation to various alcohol policies. And so we've also been working with public health officials around, uh, you know, are there, are there things that we can be doing to improve uh, public health outcomes related to alcohol use in the province? And so it's a, it is a, alcohol is a complicated file, and, uh, but we're working closely with industry to find ways that are trade compliant to support BC jobs and, and the BC industry. All right, Keith wants to jump back in here. Yeah, Mr. Attorney, I know when you were in opposition, you were quite a, a sort of ardent and articulate critic of the BC Liberal government's uh, overhaul of a number of liquor laws, uh, notably the pricing uh, aspect uh, regarding uh, wine and beer in stores. Uh, any any thought of reversing that or re- revisiting that entire area of liquor uh, policy? Yeah, you know, interestingly, um, the public spent uh, about eight hundred thousand dollars on a report by a third-party business firm um, to uh, analyze BC's liquor laws and make recommendations to government about how to change them. I would love to see that report. Uh, I think the public has a right to see that report. It cost eight hundred grand. Uh, the government based their uh, reforms on it, and. Uh, and unfortunately, although I've asked uh, Mike Young, uh, he's the designated person on the BC Liberal side, to consent to the release of that report, the public release of that report, he won't. 
and because of cabinet privilege, unfortunately, uh, I can't. It's, it's admittedly a convention. It's not a law, but it's an important convention. And I haven't seen the report myself. Uh, it's uh, presumably in some sort of cabinet. Do you think that's an acceptable convention? Um, but anyway, uh, the uh, the question about uh, about what the government knew about how their changes would impact prices, I believe they were disingenuous about it. I remember when Mr. Wilkinson told me that I was beer-mongering uh, when I said that beer prices were going to go up, and then beer <laughs> prices did go up, and then they changed the rules to address that. Um, so I, I think what we can do now going forward is exactly what we're doing, which is uh, we've got an expert on uh, liquor law and policy, Mark Hicken. He's convened this table of uh, experts from the retail and the manufacturing side to make recommendations to us and look really seriously at trade issues and other things to make sure that uh, what we roll out to support BC jobs and BC industry and consumers and having access to products that they would like to drink. I mean, there was a a very high-profile uh, issue related to whiskey uh, in uh, in an enforcement action by our regulator uh, that reflects that the rules aren't quite where we'd like them to be yet. Um, so there are lots of improvements that we can make in terms of consumer experience and in terms of business in the province. Uh, we just need to make sure they're consistent with the law. All right. Uh, David, you've been generous with your time. I appreciate you spending some of it with us today. Uh, thanks for your call. Yeah, thanks for the, inf- uh, the invitation. Interesting show you guys have. <laughs> I, I assume you mean interesting in a complimentary context. Absolutely right. <laughs> thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, man. Uh, there's Attorney General David Eby here on Inside Politics and Radio. And now we've got a few minutes for the bottom of the hour. I'm just uh, just a quick across the board here. We did hear some interesting comments. He's on, got a lot on his plate. Yeah, he does, definitely does. Who's this guy in the cabinet? Do we, do we happy with what we heard on, on what might come down the line of proportional representation Wednesday, Keith? Do you well, think that's well, enough or no? I'm relieved that the NDP Green submission from the caucus is not going to form the basis of his report because that was really a totally, as we talked about it before, a totally objective route to take, and I'm glad to see Evie's not taking that route. Uh, we'll have to wait till Wednesday to see exactly what we're going we're gonna to see, but I think finally, you know, the debate and campaign we've all been talking about, probably the conversation's going to begin on Wednesday, and I, I expect Mr. Evie to deliver a fairly comprehensive report. Bill? I'm still concerned about the level of acceptance to, to change fundamentally our democratic system. Um, I, I, 50% plus one of those who turn out, it may have been enough to satisfy the election of an MLA. I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced it's... And I'm not, I'm not headstrong for first past the post. I'm just not clear on what yeah. the option to first past the post might be and whether or not it might be appealing to me as a voter, and, mm. and until I have some sense of uh, certainty about what it is I might be voting for or against, I'm not very comfortable. Yeah, Vaughn? Yeah, I'm encouraged that he's uh, dropped the uh, NDP Green uh, notion of a blank check, but uh, I still, uh, well, he said it's his report, he's massaged it, he's putting it out. And uh, I can no more imagine uh, him being neutral on this issue than on any other uh, to steal Bill's line. I can no more imagine him being neutral than I can imagine him being short. Well, so there you go. <laughs> well, here's a question, because you used the term stack the deck a number yeah. of times. Does this do anything to alleviate that concern, or does that further cement your idea this whole thing is fixed? We have to wait and see. Yeah. You know, I mean, the the most outrageous idea, which was the NDP's idea, that we would vote on a general idea of changing the system without being told what the system would be, it sounds like they've even they've realized that was going too far. So that's encouraging. For the rest, we'll have to wait and see what they're going to do. I agree with what you're saying. There isn't an awful lot of time left mm. to get a serious debate going on this issue and a serious vote taken uh, before we're straight into the mail-out ballots this fall. Look at, how long, look at how long people had to decide things. Things like Charlottetown and Meech Lake. 
and people got engaged. You know, yeah. they really, really did, uh, to, to my amazement sometimes. Mm. But it takes more time than that for it, people to become really informed. Especially final, over final the summer. Tickets. Well, especially over summer, is no time to really get people interested in the, in the campaign. In, in another, literally on the, on the barbecue season. But uh, one thing, he did leave the door open to more than one question. He said question or questions. And that's one of the key puzzles here is how many questions are going to be on that. To look and see what impact this might have, not only in Surrey and in Point Grey, but in Kamloops and Atlan and Prince George and Prince Rupert, um, the north generally. Is it going to be fair province-wide? Yeah, agreed. Uh, we'll still have a lot more to talk about on this in the weeks, months ahead, I'm absolutely sure. Let's take a quick break here on a special afternoon edition of Inside Politics on Radio NL. When we come back, B.C. Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson will join us. More after this. Now, Radio NL, 610 AM, and RadioNL.com. From both sides of the floor, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Radio NL. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Inside Politics, a special two-hour afternoon edition. We've got a cram studio at the moment. Uh, Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson joining uh, Keith Baldry, Von Palmer, Bill Good, and myself in here. How you doing, Andrew? Great. It's a glorious day in Kamloops, and thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, you told us before uh, before we went there, this is either going to be uh, your biggest mistake or your once-in-a-lifetime experience. <laughs> well, I walk into this quartet of tigers and think, what am I doing here? I'm the poor little bunny rabbit. <laughs> yeah, sure you are. Sure you are. Uh, let's start off with Trans Mountain. Uh, there's a self-imposed Kinder Morgan deadline, May 31st, as I'm sure you're aware, next week. Uh, your thoughts on what may or may not happen there? Well, I think the unfortunate thing that in Canada, which is a big federation of 10 different provinces and a lot of divergent interests. We now look at one province dragging the issues through the courts in Alberta and in BC rather than failing to negotiate a successful outcome. That's really unfortunate. I think it's very unfortunate and it's a sad day when we pay our federal taxes that are then going to be used to backstop an American company against the behavior of our provincial government. This is not in Canada's interest, and it's certainly not in British Columbia's interest. Okay, but do they stay or do they go? What do you think Kinder Morgan's going to do? Oh, you know, I wouldn't want to be in the business of making commercial predictions, but I think it's going to be a bad, sad day for British Columbia if a major uh, operator of an existing pipeline says they'd like to exit British Columbia because it's an unstable political situation. That will be a very bad thing. So I'm hopeful that cooler minds prevail. If you were Premier and the situation was slightly reversed, would you be in favor or go down the path of the British Columbia government buying in as an equal partner or floating significant amounts of taxpayer money to ensure that this project gets built, as is the case possibly federally in Alberta? If the BC Liberals form government, we will have a very different attitude toward responsible federally approved projects in this province and the current government. And to put that in hard terms, I sure hope there won't be any need for any government in Canada to buy into a, a project where the private sector should be bearing the risk. That's not what governments are for. All right. Vaughn, you want to jump in here? Looks like you're looking thoughtful. We had a report to come out on mobility pricing uh, in and around Metro Vancouver, and I think we've all been struck at how absolutely no one has come forward, except for the Greens, to say they think it has some merit. You rejected it out of hand. Do you think it was a waste of time? No, I said that a lot of good work was done on the idea because people need to bring it into focus of what we're going to do about congestion moving around Vancouver. We've all had that experience in various parts of Metro Vancouver, getting stuck in traffic and 
thinking this can't go on, especially if another million people move to Vancouver. But what they came up with, the headline story basically, is how about you pay 5 to $8 a day for moving around the city? Um, in terms of working days, 250 days a year, would you like to pay $2,000 for the privilege of using the roads? That's just a non-starter. Well, so. one of the questions that was raised immediately when you rejected it out of hand was what would you do? And I happened to hear that as I was spending an hour and a half yesterday trying to get out of downtown Vancouver to get up here, which became a breeze once I hit about 200th Street. But getting out of Vancouver was a nightmare. So what would you do to address the issue of uh, congestion? Yeah, I think it's a very fair question because like I say, plan for another million people in the Lower Mainland. Where are they going to live and how are they going to get around? <laughs> and one of the things that immediately comes to mind is why do we have students traveling by transit from Coquitlam to UBC and back again? Maybe it's time to move some programs out of Point Grey and build some student housing so those students are walking rather than riding transit for two hours in each direction. That's one small example of how we're going to have to start to plan for bigger town centers like Metro Town and the North Surrey Town Center so people are traveling much shorter distances to work and they will arrange their lives accordingly. The problem we have with things like mobility pricing is that if I'm thinking, gee, I have this job in, at Burnaby Hospital but I can't afford to live nearby and I'm going to end up living in Maple Ridge and I'll plan my life around that. I've planned what I can afford. I commute because I have to because I'd like to have a backyard. And then you change the whole game plan for them say haha just kidding we're gonna layer on a bunch of taxes that's really really disruptive for how people live so we need to have not just kind of a short-term solution we've got to think big in terms of where we're gonna be in 30 or 50 years didn't your government essentially do that when it imposed uh, tolls on the Portman Bridge well those were uh, ways of financing infrastructure projects and I think not that ones, was at the, the time the right thing to do you get a whopping big bridge and somebody's got to pay for it so the idea was that users pay for it I don't think there's any way to go back on that now because you know I was at an event once where someone said well we should uh, reimpose the tolls on the Portman Bridge and I said well you'll make a great candidate for us in North Surrey you'll be really popular but here's but here's my problem with that this whole thing in my mind has been how politics can ruin good ideas and that doesn't just go for the BC Liberals it goes for the current NDP you guys brought in a plan to toll the Portman in the golden years when you should have told all the bridges at one fair price and you sewered that entire system because the NDP used it and the pure unpopularity of it to soar into power and now the idea of tolling of bridges which is the easiest way to enact mobility pricing is an absolute no-go in the region it's just a gong show why, how do you move out of that? How do you find a solution after you guys have muckraked the whole thing? One of the interesting things this Mobility Pricing Commission has talked about is if you put on little tolls like Bucker Bridge, it probably doesn't change behavior and it really is a tax grab. So their thesis, and I'm not sure it's all that uh, defensible, is well if you're going to put on any kind of charge, it's got to be enough to, to hurt so that people will change their behavior and that's going to be unpopular. So it's a, between a rock and a hard place. It's got to get done. It's just I'm not sure that $2,000 a year for that person to drive from Maple Ridge to Burnaby is the right way to go. What about it. another more fair form of mobility pricing? And that is the gas tax, taking money that we're already spending on tax and putting it toward solving congestion issues. Or carbon I, tax. Same. Yeah, we have, I believe, at 17 cents a liter in the lower mainland for the uh, transit tax, basically. And then throughout the province, it's about 9.8 cents of carbon tax as it is today. And so if you're a motorist, you say, well, 
that's a lot of tax, and those people in electric cars aren't paying a nickel of that. So how is this going to work if they all go electric? Well, clearly, somebody's going to have to pay for the roads and the bridges and so forth. So in British Columbia and in Canada generally, people have been pretty reluctant to start designating revenue streams to particular purposes. And the obvious one is David Eby's so-called school levy, which has nothing to do with schools whatsoever. It's a family homes tax. But that point being that if we start to designate the amounts of tax paid by motorists only for motorist purposes, then you start to say, well, who's going to pay for all those programs you just cut off? So I think what I'm saying to this quartet of... uh, superstar journalists in the room here is that I don't have a clever answer right now on mobility pricing. Some good work has been done, but the solution they're proposing just isn't viable in my mind. I want to change the topic to an issue you've been raising in the House quite a bit, and that's the looming payroll tax. Uh, Do you think the seeds are being planted for a great scenario for your party and a bad one for the NDP along traditional lines when the NDP gets in power, which is the opposition free enterprise coalition party concentrates on taxes and spending and puts the NDP on the defensive. Is this basically the tryout uh, we've we've seen at the beginning of your your leadership here, that that's going to be the the messaging going forward as we head into the next couple of years? I think the challenge for the NDP is they've proven themselves to be really good at raising taxes across the board, and we can all list off half a dozen of them. What they are not good is uh, figuring out how that flows through the economy and affects real people in their daily lives. They're also, in my uh, humble submission, not very good at all at governing. They're quite happy to put things out for study, then they're not sure what to do with them when they come back and they dally and then they do things like this stupid email scandal they've embarked upon by just mismanaging things. So I think in my, if I were advising the NDP, and I'm, this is a dark day in Kamloops, so I'm saying that, <laughs> but uh, if I were advising the NDP, I'd say you guys have got to buckle down and figure out the basic mechanics of government and think of things through the eyes of the average British Columbian, how it's going to affect them when you pile on taxes and you pretend, and let's underline pretend, those taxes are going to be paid by the wealthy or by developers or by other demons. They're going to be paid by average British Columbians sooner but, or later because it all the, flows through. Given the tightness of the of the budget with the, just a, a minuscule $219 million projected surplus, does Carol James have realistically have any room to move in terms of relaxing some of these taxation measures? Well, that's going to be the challenge for any incoming government is figuring out how to reduce the tax burden on British Columbians, and it probably means being a little less ambitious in your programming compared to the NDP. And let's take their big mess that's evolving, which is their affordable child care. They came out with a grand flourish in their budget on February 20th. Their number one item to put in the window was affordable child care. There are about 6,000 private child care operators in the province that provide hundreds of thousands of spaces, and they are in open rebellion saying the program they're putting forward is just not workable. I've been asked to go and visit one in Richmond that is actually considering shutting down completely because their business model has fallen apart because of the NDP. But that said, the pricing in the lower main, and I speak as a parent who had a, a, a new child down there, is insane. You pay... Well, would be the equivalent of a mortgage here in Kamloops to put your kid in daycare. And then you have to pay what it would be an insane mortgage. Financially, it's completely untenable. So while you may find fault with the NDP's plan, clearly the public wants something there. Yeah, and I think the child care profile has got to be addressed. We, when we're in government, put together, I think it's 37,000 new child care spaces. Price is still an issue we've got to address, but the NDP plan is not working, and so it's going to have to require an overhaul. 
We had a uh, pro-life rally at the legislature a couple of weeks ago. Two of your MLAs went to it. We haven't had a serious controversy over abortion in British Columbia since Bill Vanderzam left town. Uh, are your party looking at changes on that issue? Uh, are you going to give your members a free vote on it? Uh, what are you on about with abortion? We're a big tent party, and a couple of our members out of 42 uh, went to the event, and the rest of us did not. So I don't foresee any change in our approach to issues related to uh, continuation of pregnancies. I think the way things are is the way things should be. But your members are free to follow their sort of feelings on that issue? We tell our folks if they want to go and support uh, particular causes, let us know in advance, give us the courtesy of that, and follow your conscience. But remember, we're a big tent. You don't bring your personal ideas back in here and bang the drum. You're allowed to live your, your personal principles and be true to your constituents. But when it comes to the party's position, we make that as a team, not as individuals. And enjoy life on the back bench. Well, uh, that's a, a bit of a harsh judgment, Bill, <laughs> but you're a man I of think it's very fair one. years. <laughs> <laughs> All right, with that, we'll take a break here on uh, Radio NL and bid adieu to Andrew Wilkinson, sir. Thank you for coming in. Appreciate it. Uh, pleasure to have everyone in the studio, and you got down to join us. That was good. And it's been a privilege to be here, and I hope I never get exposed to this much firepower again. <laughs> yeah, well, you will. You <laughs> will. Uh, well, a lot more on Radio NL. We'll wrap up with the final segment of a special show right after this. To you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good afternoon. Welcome back. Uh, we're in the final segment of a special two hour show here on uh, Radio NL. Bill Good, uh, Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, all uh, here in studio, which I think is kind of a, a very special and almost a once in a lifetime uh, show I'm having here. So I'm, I'm super thrilled about it. Uh, let's, we got about 10 minutes or so to wrap up. Uh, I did want to touch on something as, as Andrew Wilkinson was talking in the last segment. It occurred to me, and this is something that really bothers me. When we have these uh, taxation sort of talks in an election style format, uh, there's one side that always just you know craps a brick anytime somebody talks about higher taxes that's just the no more no more tax no more higher tax well and my opinion is that why can't we talk like adults about taxation taxes pay for stuff I have no problem with that David uh, Suzuki once said to me tax isn't a four letter word yeah but I think that the governments have to be honest and I was uh, privileged to be asked to interview Carol James I think it was in November um, when she had uh, just become finance minister and it was at the Vancouver Board of Trade and she was uh, very conciliatory uh, very complimentary to the people there uh, talking about how important that community was the business community both big and small to her government and how they understood the importance of uh, that constituency and now they're feeling I think really betrayed uh, we've all been reacting to things like the the so-called school tax, mm. uh, the so-called um, speculation tax, but I think a whole lot of small businesses are, are, are looking at um, the tax on, that, that's been shifted on MSP. They promised to get rid of MSP, yes. which was a very unfair tax on all of us, Yes, but they've shifted it very quietly to small businesses who are now going, that's going to cost me $48,000. I would argue not so quietly. Yeah. Fair <laughs> enough now, but... They're, they're going, well, we didn't expect that. Um, the only way to deal with this is we don't have more revenue. We're not paying more tax. We're probably going to have to fire somebody or lay somebody off because yeah. this is our lifeblood. It's our revenue. And 
it's not being replaced. It's just being taken from us. Yeah. And I think this is really going to start to to grow even more than and and while people may not have sympathy for people on three million dollar houses, even though they may be seniors with little income, I think most of us realize that small businesses struggle to survive. Whether it's your local not chain restaurant yeah. or your laundry or whatever, those people live on very, very thin margin. Okay, so uh, obviously the NDP government has tabled the speculation tax. They've uh, switched, as you talked about, from the MSP to the employer health tax. we got the school tax. Uh, we got an array of taxes, and I'm sure this will come up when you guys do your thing at the BC Chamber of Commerce tomorrow because this is going to be one of their favorite topics. How do you go about filling the provincial coffers, addressing some of the issues, to, uh, housing, etc., health care costs? We can't just punch a $4 billion hole in the budget. How do you go about addressing those uh, and and getting away with it? I mean, is there room? Does Carol James have room to move on this thing? A pipeline might provide some of that revenue. <laughs> Just thinking. Well, a big part of the problem with these taxes, Shane, and it's become apparent in the in increasingly apparent since the budget. Normally, we get budgets, we get taxes on the on budget day. That was back in February, three months ago. Mm. And normally, finance has all the answers the day they announce the tax. That's how they analyze it. Yeah. You know, James was in the legislature week before last, the last time the House sat three days, with two of the best critics on the Liberal side trying to get straight answers about these taxes, and they still don't have answers. Mm. Who is paying the payroll tax? How many businesses actually will be affected? Businesses that weren't paying MSP premiums that will now have to pay the payroll tax. Businesses that be double taxed one year. Nonprofits, many of them are going to be paying this tax. They, some of them weren't paying MSP premiums, school boards, local governments, it goes on and on. They got almost no answers. Mm. The, the really disturbing thing about this is that what it looks to me like is that finance, and this doesn't happen a lot in British Columbia, is making it up as they go along. We saw it with a speculation tax. It was announced. It's been changed dramatically. Yeah. We still... I've heard from lawyers who say they still cannot advise their clients exactly what to do about the speculation tax because we don't have legislation and we don't have regulations. <laughs> We've got press releases. So I think there's a whole issue around it. It's very hard to say what her actual financial position is because she's got a bunch of hypothetical taxes that we don't know still who they're going to bite and how deeply they're going to bite. All right, fair enough. Uh, and I'll add to that a little bit by saying Carol James told us yesterday morning uh, that not-for-profits, charities... Uh, school boards and universities are going to get some kind of relief from the employer health tax, something that will be announced before the summer if starts. She, if she do, it moves even a little bit, she goes into deficit. This is the, why she's she's in a um, um, in a box here because a two hundred nineteen million dollar deficit on a what fifty three billion dollar uh, uh, budget is is less than uh, one zero one point zero one percent. So there's no room for her to relax taxation here. If she if she were to cut the payroll tax by ten percent, that would probably be almost enough to knock her into a deficit situation. So if there is any relief, it's going to be very minor. When I, when, when I said pipelines, it may have sounded a little flip, <laughs> flippant. But what I meant was they have to start looking at more ways to generate revenue. You can tax yes. people and tax people and tax people, and all that does is reduce their ability. First of all, it doesn't make it more affordable, and it doesn't increase their ability to, to buy things and purchase things. What this government has to do is find ways to generate revenue to pay for child care, to pay for the other things it wants to do that uh, people will applaud and, in fact, voted for them. 
to do. But you can't do it just by raising taxes. But you know what governments have been loath to do across the country? It doesn't mean it's NDP or Liberal Conservative. The whole income tax aspect of revenue has fallen off the table. Nobody wants to be seen as increasing income taxes. And historically, that was where a big chunk of the taxation revenue came from. But ever since Gordon Campbell chopped BC income taxes by 25% in um, in 2001, other than just back and forth on the high end earners between the Liberals and the NDP, even the Liberals brought in a high end uh, uh, tax on, on high income earners, you don't see governments playing game, playing around with income taxes anymore. They want to raise money through other forms of taxation in BC. It's a speculation tax, a so-called school tax, the payroll tax, other taxes like that exist in other provinces. And, but, and again, I wonder whether it's time for, for governments to go back and look at income taxes. Well, they might go back and look at what happened that was the birth of the Reform Party. And the Reform Party grew uh, by fighting income taxes that were above 50%. Well, you, you could still, there's room to tinker with them. I yeah. Don't, don't, I th- don't I think question that, but I'm just saying it's a, it's a murky road for government to go down. I think it, it's, a, it's a weird little trap, because we know, we, everybody in this room knows it's going to happen. The NDP government today says we're going to raise income taxes by 5%. The Liberals will instantly lose their mind exactly five seconds later. The NDP government's raising taxes, oh my God! And we get into this really easy-peasy argument of tax-no-tax tax, when we should be able to have a little bit well, more of a They're raising taxes now. Yes, it's, they are. It's just a different type of tax. And Liberals are screaming going, they're raising and, taxes. <laughs> and back to my question, Andrew Wilkinson, that is the, the traditional historical narrative when NDP governments get in power in this province. They suddenly become accused of being taxers and spenders by the opposition. And it's a nice black and white uh, contrast for the voters. And that's why the NDP doesn't usually last uh, in, in power for, for as long as the Free Enterprise Coalition does. Do you think that the speculation tax would have been more palpable for people and gone over a bit better if it had had a different name? like the empty homes tax, because I think part of the problem is people thought, okay, speculators are, are screwing everybody re- on the real estate market. Let's get those guys. That's why it was popular initially. It yeah, was, it was labeled we, the speculation tax, which call, was an got, easy sale. But we got a speculation tax that it's quite literally tax. does not tax speculation, no. which is stupid. So why not call it an empty homes tax? Maybe that's that school tax that does not go to schools. That was stupid too. Yeah. <laughs> they also point out that two thirds of the people that are paying it are British Columbians. Yeah. So the the I think when, people thought uh, what, foreign speculators. I believe that was what people thought they were going after yeah. and why they thought it was a good idea. I foreign believe John Horgan said the British Columbians wouldn't pay it at all, didn't he? Wasn't he quoted as saying something? Two thirds of the people. And the empty homes tax would have been fine if they were truly empty homes, but they went after people, mostly British Columbians, who had second homes that they didn't leave empty they used for part of the year or mm. for family events or for kids who came back yeah. from college, they weren't actually empty homes. It's interesting. I just got back from Denmark and, and uh, was talking to my wife's relatives in Copenhagen, and they had the exact same tax on almost an identical situation, except they called it an empty homes tax, and what they did on the vacation side is they zoned for vacation property. So you could have the vacation property, but you could never have it as a primary address until you retired. And that's how they got around that. So there we go. Well, you want to see high taxes, go to some of those northern European countries. And if you want to see high gas prices, go to some of those European countries as well. Absolutely. But they're also <laughs> they're also consistently ranked as some of the happiest countries in the world. So Because well, they, well, they get stuff for their taxes. Like, oh, Denmark you know, is supposed to be ranked the number one happiest, yeah. if I Free recall. Free university, explains gold-plated health care. Which explains your happiness all the time. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, guys, we have a couple minutes left. Uh, I just want to take a minute here and say thanks uh, to all three of you for coming. It's a pleasure I, to come up here. I know you guys uh, came in a day ahead of your schedule to accommodate me in the show, and I really appreciate that. And it's been a really, uh, it's been a really cool. Uh, even though we got a bit of a rough yeah. start there, it's been a, a very, been very cool and interesting time. We're gonna have a good event tomorrow. Great pleasure, Shane. Thanks for inviting me. And Bill, especially good to see you, my friend. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to be with these guys. I used to enjoy it every Friday. Now I get to do it uh, at least once a year. <laughs> well, will you come back on with us sometime? Anytime. All right. There we go. And I'll see you guys later when we beer monger a little bit later on today. Sounds good. <laughs> That's it for a very, very interesting and very special show of Inside Politics here on Radio NL. We'll be back to our regular time slot, 9 o'clock, uh, 9.08 next Friday. And I can tell you right now, Premier John Horgan will join us on that show here on NL.